Hello and welcome to, to to the Outside Podcast. I was trying to do a really kind of funky hello and like a hello and welcome kind of thing, but it <laughs> it, it didn't quite right. I, I kind of like lost confidence halfway through. Do you know what I mean? So I got to like hello and then I was like, oh no, I sound awful. Welcome. Anyway, <laughs> podcast listeners, it's lovely to have you with us. We've been having a good time already, as you can probably tell. We are delighted to have Alex McCann with us here from Onside. Um, Alex has been in conversation with Tuesday and I now for knocking on a year on all kinds of various subjects and ideas and goodness. And we wanted to introduce her to you because she's so fantastic. Um, Tuesday, before we let Alex speak and introduce herself a little bit, do you, do you want to say anything before we dive in, mate? I mean, yeah, I can I can affirm Alex' fantasticness uh, without any Boom. pressure for you, Alex. Um, I yeah, think no pressure. That- <laughs> yeah, everyone has off days. You're allowed an off day if you want. You can have an off day on the pod. Yeah. <laughs> but what I might add is we were fortunate enough to have Alex in our Activating Change leadership cohort. And so, you know, we've, we've been in these conversations about work for a year and then she joined the cohort. And so really, I think part of what you're going to be hearing today is a conversation around uh, folks. I think you can tell how much we like each other, but I think like folks who are like definitely moving deeper into friendship and collaboration together. And so just like love to kind of like pull the curtain back and show that as well. So welcome, Alex. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for for having me here. I love uh, I love the idea that I'm from uh, onside and and I'm on the outside a podcast. Oh, so right. yeah, <laughs> play on words, play on words. So yeah, thank you so much for for having me here. I'm really excited about the the conversations that we have been having and the conversation we're going to have today. So thanks so much. Wicked. Well, I think you're going to have to give a little bit of backstory here. Like, you know, who's Alex McCann? How did you end up in Nova Scotia? And how did you end up working on on the onside? Enough to like invite us into a conversation with each other. Give us a little, give us a little peek behind the curtains, mate. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Well. Well. I guess the first thing I'll probably start off with uh, is something I'm pretty proud about, which is that I am a new Canadian. So. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. So as of this year, I am a a new Canadian. I've been here in Halifax, Nova Scotia for for many years, but I took the plunge. I I meant to do it before and obviously before the pandemic, but uh, I'm a new Canadian. So I'm an immigrant. I am a woman of color. I'm originally from the U.S. I'm from an African-American family with uh, all kinds of people mixed in there. And uh, I have been a global citizen for my entire life. Um, Mm. My father Uh, was a public health doctor. He worked for the World Health Organization. He worked for USAID. He worked for all kinds of international organizations. And so growing up, I traveled around the world with my family, my dad. We lived in uh, Thailand. I lived in Abidjan in the Ivory Coast um, and uh, went to school. Gosh, I've gone, I went to school in Japan. I've gone to school in the UK. I've gone to school here in Canada, the U.S., I'm kind of a global citizen. So. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, thinking about like how I ended up at Onside, I feel like there's like this life journey that probably leads you to moments. But as a kid, you know, growing up with my family, living internationally in a lot of uh, developing countries, I had an opportunity to see different places and realize, you know, different places are developing at different rates. You know, why do some people have 
all of the things. And, you know, some places don't, or some places are really investing in their infrastructure and, and uh, some places are struggling with basic, you know, needs for food, security, healthcare. And uh, even as a young child, I was pretty, you know, attuned to this and noticing these things. And, uh, you know, through my life, through my, through my studies or my courses of study, uh, that was something that was always interesting to me, you know, how, how do you create sustainable development um, and how do communities um, figure that out? So mm. I, uh, you know, through, through school, I went to the University of Virginia. I studied anthropology and Asian studies. Mm. People are always surprised to hear that. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I did, I did theater and philosophy. So there you oh, go. Okay. You know okay. I mean? People are like, why did you do anthropology? And I was like, you know, I've always been interested in cultures and how mm, cultures impact totally. everything that we do. Totally. Uh, yeah. And then I uh, went from there and traveled around for a bit. And I ended up at uh, the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. Mm. Uh, and I did my master's there. And I was particularly interested. I had great teachers focused on geography. Uh, but what I was really interested in was Japanese official development assistance and looking at the models that Japan used to invest in uh, developing countries and how that was different than what was happening in the West. Wow. Um, yeah. And um, it was really interesting. And I think part of it was because when I was a kid living in West Africa, I would see all kinds of um, Chinese and Japanese uh, businesses operating there. And I was always like, how did these people end up here? <laughs> you know, it just, hmm. and what are they trying to do? And they were building roads and bridges and construction and making investments. And I always thought that was really interesting. And then uh, in my, in my schoolwork, doing my master's, I um, had a focus uh, related to export development Um, And then when I finished, I ended up at the Export-Import Bank of the U.S. As you do. Yeah, as you do, as you do. And I had a really interesting career there working in uh, all kinds of things, but uh, mostly in doing debt restructuring uh, for large infrastructure projects, clean tech, ocean tech, renewables, um, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, But what I was really looking at when I joined was trying to figure out how did these large infrastructure projects get uh, created in places like Indonesia or, um, you know, in, in Brazil and, and these kinds of right. things? I was still on that track of like trying to understand mm-hmm. how does development happen? How does infrastructure take place? How do, how do places get these things? Um, so I spent about 10 years uh, doing that kind of work. I moved more into uh, looking at renewable energy and stuff, which was which was really great. And then at some point, you know, had kids, life, all that good jazz. Yep. And, um, you know, I was living in Washington, D.C., which is lovely. It was lovely. Um, but then sometime after 9-11, you know, I think my husband, who's who's from, uh, from Canada, he's from Newfoundland, and I sort of decided – these Easterners always want to come home, don't they? They do. There's like a magnet Dude, here. There's a magnet. Honestly, like the amount of people I know have moved from away because they married an East Coaster somewhere else, mm-hmm. and then they've moved back here. Like there's some real, there's some real coming home that happens again and again and again. You know? Oh man, so, there's something in the water. There's like a magnet. Yeah. So we got uh, caught up in the magnet and uh, moved back and uh, ended up here. Ended up here in Halifax and. Uh, you know, I, I started, had to restart my life here in Halifax. 
I did some consulting work with some uh, renewable energy companies kind of in the beginning and then uh, worked also at Nova Scotia Business Inc. where I did investment attraction. I, was just, I, I did all kinds of things, clean tech, ocean tech, life sciences, uh, agri-food, seafood. I did all kinds of things. I was, I was like a jack of all trades. And uh, eventually I left that and, and uh, went to the private sector. I was running a, a company called Bay Run. And that was going, going great. And um, a few people who knew me and kind of knew my background kept telling me about this uh, role at Onside. Um, and, um, I was like, okay, you know, like, but after probably like the fifth person told me, told me about it, they were like, I think, I think you should look at this, this Hmm. role. I think this is like lines up with everything that you're interested in. Um, and they're trying to create something really new and interesting and trying to help, uh, communities accelerate and access that growth and, um, you know, access that economic development potential. And uh, that was that was something that was really interesting to me. And, and I, I, uh, I, I like new things. Mm. I like trying new things. I think I told somebody once, if it hasn't been done before, that I'm definitely doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I kind of took the took the leap and said, Yeah, I think um, the mission and mandate of Onside, which is to convene, connect and catalyze an innovation driven uh, entrepreneurial community here in, in Nova Scotia is something I'm I'm definitely interested in, and I think I can can make a difference. And uh, so I took the leap. I got some great uh, supporters behind me. Our board is really awesome, and and that's how I kind of uh, ended up in Nova Scotia and here at Onside. Yeah, kind of a long circuitous route. <laughs> Love it. You haven't done much then. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty straight line. Pretty straight line. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it. I I think I changed something on my LinkedIn profile. I was like, I think I started calling myself a neo generalist. I was like, I just kind of <laughs> neo generalist. Uh, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I was like, I'll, I'll I like just trying new things and, and going in different directions. But but at the core, I've always kind of been trying to figure out how it is that um, people in places um, you know uh, improve themselves. How um, you know, how, how we improve the, the quality of life in different places and how different groups of people and places have been able to, to do mm. that. So that's kind of, even though I've done a bunch of different things, that's something I'm constantly chasing. Mm. This is amazing. And I'm curious, I'm so glad you kind of named that red thread, right? Like this is, you know, like what I'm about is learning about people and places and how they're, how they're doing things together. I'm really curious. So you've been in Nova Scotia for a while now, and what a what a shift from DC to Nova Scotia, um, and and from the many places you've been. And so I'm curious, both what you're finding about Nova Scotia that's like unique to there, and how change is made, and how innovation is born. I would love mm-hmm. to hear your thoughts on that, and I'd also love to know like what's it like being a woman of color leading mm-hmm. an innovation in the province, right? So there's something actually like really like to Nova Scotia, I'd love for you to speak to. Yeah. Well, Nova Scotia is really interesting for me coming from from Washington, which is such a global city. Like there's so many, there, there's kind of two cities. There's a city that, you know, people are born and bred and, you know, live there. And then there are people coming from everywhere, political folks. So it's a very interesting, dynamic, global place. Um, 
But I find in Nova Scotia, people really have this sense of being from here, like being mm. of this place. Like, I, you know, I, my husband, other family, people I know have been drawn back. So there's a sense of community, mm. a sense of connection, uh, a sense of history uh, that feels like it's like really deeply rooted in, in people. Mm. Um, and in this and in this place, uh, I heard someone say Nova Scotia is God's country. I was like, I feel like people in Montana say that too. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he was dead serious. He was like, this is God's country. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I've heard that phrase. I've heard that phrase too. Have you? I've heard that phrase too. But, but never about Nova Scotia as whole, only about the area that somebody comes from within Nova Scotia. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, this person who said this to me, they were from Bridgewater. So maybe they meant specifically Bridgewater. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I find that there's a real sense of place and community that, that exists here that I haven't really, I haven't quite experienced in the, in the, in the same way. So it's, I find that really, uh, interesting and, and dynamic. It also makes people, uh, work very closely mm. together. Um, in some ways it's able to build trust, um, a little quicker because it's not such a huge place and you have to depend on the people who are around you. Um, you know, the people that are here, are the people that are here, mm. um, it's changing now, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, in a place like, you know, New York city or Toronto, or, you know, there's all kinds of people coming in and out. Um, and that's kind of happening now, but you, you kind of invest in the people mm. who are around you here is, is sort of how I feel. Yeah. Mm. And um, I think the other question you asked was, uh, what is it like to yeah. be a woman of color leading an innovation-oriented organization? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. I, I was thinking about that um, and trying to think of how to how to explain how I feel about it. In some ways, I'm I feel so lucky and so blessed. Like I have my entire career has been uh, focused on um, international business. I've worked with all kinds of interesting sectors, from you know clean tech, life sciences, uh, petrochemicals, oil and gas. So, I, so continuing to work in this space allows me to connect with those kinds of industries and businesses and startups and entrepreneurs that really like mm. get me going. And like, I'm really excited about seeing their, their progress. Um, as a, I, I think in general, women in leadership, you know, you're in a kind of a, like a smaller mm -hmm. group, um, sort of just generally or statistically. And then uh, women of color, um, you know, is, is probably less. And I find that women of color who are focused on innovation and entrepreneurship is like yeah. even smaller. Yeah. <laughs> so Absolutely. I, I was thinking about that today and I was like, I have this little like peer group of other women of color who are all, you know, uh, movers and shakers, I guess I, it would be the way that I would say it. But actually, I was like thinking about it. I was like, I think I only really know one other woman of color who's leading an organization that's focused on innovation and entrepreneurship. There, there could be others. There, I'm not, maybe I just don't know them, but wow. um, it's a bit of a lonely space, mm -hmm. I guess I would say. And, you know, the thing that keeps me going is that I'm very interested and passionate about the, about the work, but um, but it can be a bit lonely because there there aren't as many other people who are who are like you, yeah. um, and you're always trying to carve out space for yourself. 
and and also being a uh, an immigrant uh, woman as well your your network is not quite as deep or established or you know those kinds of things uh you know there's always this like come from away type thing mm-hmm. and they're like so where are you from or who do you know or you know these things so i find i have to really work to you know build connections and you know uh, where, where other people might have had some of these connect social connections or business connections from you know the time that they were five because they went to the to the right kindergarten right you know, that kind of thing right mm-hmm. so uh yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's a bit lonely but i just keep plugging ahead yeah choose i feel like you've got a follow-up question there and i yeah, I, I wondered about the loneliness and kind of like what what that means when things get hard, right? Like so we've been through this yeah. pandemic, we've been through something that's been quite hard kind of on the global economy. And so just wondering about that, it makes sense to me. And But you mentioned a peer group. You mentioned mm-hmm. the small peer group you had. And I'm curious a little bit about, you know, a little bit about that. I don't, you know, like not names, but like what does that do yeah. and how did that happen? Because I think our listeners, many will feel somewhat isolated. They'll feel like they're on their own. And so I'm curious if you can give us a peek into that peer group that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Actually the, the group, um, they're kind of like my lifeline to sanity. Mm, Okay. Okay. Especially over the last two years, you know, when, um, you know, when before I could run into people or, you know, we, with the pandemic, we're just so isolated. And, um, you know, before I would, you know, run into people I would know or, connect with other people or, you know, these kinds of things. In the last, you know, two, three years, it's been really hard to, to do that. So uh, we have a little WhatsApp group mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we it's a, it's a safe space and we can, you know, say what we need to say, uh, jokes, information, um, what's going on, uh, reactions to, you know, what's happening in the economy or political stuff or, or just pretty much, pretty much anything. Um, and we're all very supportive in terms of uh, sharing knowledge, sharing mm. opportunities. So if if there's like, oh, you know, there's a you know an interesting grant opportunity or a job proposal or you know or something like that mm-hmm. or or talent, I'm looking for somebody who can do this particular function. Does anybody know anybody? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a, a safe space where you can chat, basically. At any time, I have to say though, I am um, I'm probably like the most slacker ish oh. <laughs> of the group of the group, and uh, you know when I go back to it, there's usually like you know a hundred messages, and I haven't checked them yet, and so I have to like scroll through super fast and be like, okay, what's happening? I had to like catch up on all the all the all the news, but it uh, it keeps me it keeps me grounded and keeps me sane and feel like connected um, to, to, to other folks. And it's very kind of informal Mm. and friendly and, you know, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's really helpful. It's it's really helpful. So I I would say for, for anyone who, who doesn't have that, you know, creating something with, you know, like-minded people, very informal, uh, but a safe, trusted space, I think, uh, I mean, it's literally a WhatsApp group, isn't it? It doesn't require any yeah. like deep tech or, you know, anything like that. Deep tech. That's I'm, imagine, I'm, 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 I'm just imagining, I'm, I, I, I was like imagining a text of like, in a boardroom with all white men over 50, dot, 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 <laughs> again. Again. <laughs> um, look, I'm, I'm going to take a slightly off tack, all right? And, and I know we can come back, but like when I was listening to your 
your history, your story, you know, there's a question I always want to ask, which I very rarely get a chance to ask, which is, and, and you're talking about kind of like sustainable development in countries all over the world, but also very specifically in countries in the global South, right? And and I'm just really curious, like, if you have any analysis, I mean, a lot of the analysis I hear or read about is that the majority of the development that's happening in the global South, almost regardless of where it's coming from, is in some ways an extension of colonialism, mm. right? It's an extension of something that's fundamentally exploitative and extractive, right? Mm. And is often centering power again with the few rather than serving the many because of the way the money is distributed and things like that. And, and, uh, and, and I'm saying those things, to be honest, without a really thorough analysis was that a really thorough understanding of the context? But knowing that's the messages I receive from many of the people I bump up, bump into in my world and context. And I just, I don't get the opportunity to ask people who've got extensive experience mm. in that kind of world or have done the kind of traveling you have with the view that you have into the world. Um, even as a young kid, just like, what's your experience of that? Is that, it's, it's, it's got to be more nuanced than that, hasn't it? And, mm. and yeah, so I just, I just love to invite you to speak to it a minute. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, I definitely have conflicted feelings about development assistance and, and, uh, these kinds of things. Um, and I do think in some ways it can be super helpful, you know, like if you need a hospital and you're going to put a hospital in a region that doesn't have one and, you know, people have Ebola virus or something, obviously development assistance is needed ASAP right. or, um, you know, people who are, are hungry or, you know, things like this. But that was actually, you know, part of when I was in grad school, something that I was looking at. And that's why I looked at Japanese um, development assistance to see how it contrasted. I was always, in, I, I studied Japanese, I lived in Japan, all this stuff. So I was always interested in, you know, how does this, uh, how is this different from uh, US, Canadian, European, Dutch, you know, uh, development assistance? Because when I would travel for work, I would, you know, hear, uh, you know, I'd be in the Philippines and they'd say, oh, I prefer to get the Japanese assistance or, you know, <laughs> other places. And a lot of it is because the, the aid that was received from Japan, uh, although, you know, I'm sure it's changed and it's not perfect, was what they would call untied aid. Mm. So there's tied aid and untied aid. So if the U.S. or Canada or France or Germany or Netherlands offers aid, sometimes they'll say, okay, I'll give you $10 million to support, I don't know, maternal and child health care. Uh, oh, but the $10 million, you have to use U.S. suppliers uh, or U.S. Uh -huh. US related, yeah. um, you know, kinds of uh, equipment or something like that. So it's, it's right. kind of tied aid. Uh, and there's a lot more tied aid than there is untied. Untied is like, okay, here's $10 million. You do what you want to do. You find the best stuff. And we totally support you. Go ahead. And so it creates a... Uh, a level of influence when your aid is tied, even if you're going to build a hospital or a road or something like that, uh, it creates a, a power imbalance um, between the recipient and the, the donor, where the donor's like, I'll give you the money. I got $10 million. You're doing pretty badly. You really need this $10 million, Right. But I want to direct it at my companies or my resources or, or things like that. And I want you to use these suppliers. Um 
So it, it can create some, some inequitable practices and imbalances. I think, you know, over the years and also having organizations like the Gates Foundation or other kinds of larger uh, not-for-profit entities has kind of changed that dynamic. But I, I do think it's a bit of a risk. And kind of what I was hearing, at least with the Japanese assistance, is uh, they had a lot more untied uh, and also their, um, even if it was tied, they're a little bit less um, politically oriented than the U.S. or Canada or, um, you know, the U.K., in terms of their assistance. So like right now, you know, all this abortion debate and stuff like that, there's a lot of stuff that's not being funded or being funded um, globally around maternal and child health because the U.S. has a particular uh, political bent or doesn't, you know, goes like goes swings back and forth. And so whether or not a country needs those services or needs those supplies is impacted by the, you know, donor country's political point of view. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're moving right into what I wanted to ask you about, which is not not with like certainty, but I'm curious about the underlying beliefs or worldviews. Like what is different in Japan that most of our, and I know we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about mm-hmm. necessarily current day best practice, but like just thinking about the difference in worldview that you experience studying, like the giving of aid that is untied or the giving of aid that is less political. I'm wondering if you could articulate what is the difference in worldview between giving aid in a way that's more common to the West, the US, mm-hmm. UK, and and other countries giving of aid. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to like sink below the action mm-hmm. into the beliefs underneath it, because Tim, in some ways, I think that might get to some of the colonialization or colonization mm-hmm. that we're talking about. So I don't know if you can feel okay to speak to that, but... Yeah. And, and I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say Japanese aid is without, I mean, we're, we're, you know, every, every place has a culture and a people and yes. a, you know, a belief system. I think what my observation is that it's just more overt mm. uh, in the West. Mm. Um, and, you know, until, you know, maybe recently, there's, there haven't been that many uh, highly developed economies in Asia that can provide aid. So, um, and I think that, uh, you know, Japan is uh, very Japan centric and they have their own legacy of, uh, you know, colonialism yeah. and, you yeah. know, all this other stuff themselves. So I think after World War II and, you know, they have a self-defense force, I think they're very cautious um, about how they're perceived, especially in other, you know, Asian nations. I mean, not, not to say that it's it's perfect, but I think that they're a bit a bit more cautious about how they play with their neighbors. Mm. And um, the realm of, you know, the political influence that comes from like, you know, the G20 or uh, these kinds of things, which they play a role, but uh, tends to be a little bit less uh, on the um, development, humanitarian kind of assistance. Like, the, the, you know, I, I guess if I think of development assistance, you know, the top countries that come to mind are like UK, US, Canada, France, mm-hmm. Japan would be like much, much further down the line. And I, and, and I think probably as a percentage of their GDP, um, you know, that's uh, that the expenditure is, is much smaller. So like the, the, the influence, the opportunity influence is probably uh, probably a bit smaller. I think uh, in the West, a higher percentage of uh, GDP is spent on military mm-hmm. and soft politics of, uh, of um, 
sustainable development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally see it. I mean, being British, I I can totally see it being housed in a in a question of quality control. Like Mm. I can see it being like, well, you've got to use British contractors because that ensures quality. Uh, It ensures that there's a a lack of corruption through the process because obviously, you know, we're not as corrupt as you are. I I, I can just, (laughs) just talking about belief shoes. (laughs) No, exactly. No. Colonial, colonial based, you know, beliefs that are an extension of colonialism. I can just see it. I mean, I can, you know, the kind of school I went to, I can see the debate. You know, mm-hmm. in the in debate club, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, and 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 like, and you know how it's all housed in a fundamental belief of superiority, right? And and as a result, that becomes the filter through which money is shared, and 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 and, and uh, it enforces that power imbalance that you talked about, Alex. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it leverages wealth to maintain a power imbalance, uh, a global power imbalance, which of course has benefit for the nations that are distributing the money in lots and lots right. and lots of, in geopolitical ways, in economic ways, in, right? Yeah, sorry, Choose, you were popping in there. Well, I was laughing, if you want to know why I was laughing when you started talking, because I feel like you kind of went into, I don't know, your voice, right? Of like the voice of like, no, like, oh, this is how, it's like your British private school voice. Like you like, yeah. you, you just like talk it through. So that's why I was laughing yeah. Uh, Cause yeah. I think you're right. You could just, you could just run it through that filter. And the other things I heard, which of course would no surprise no one is something about like underlying around entitlement. We give you so much of our, this, you, you know what I mean? Like, there's just like a sense of like, we do this for you. So of course we get to control this. Like, mm-hmm. of, you know, like we, you know, there's something, there's something inherently reinforcing of superiority, mm-hmm. right? which I think is Tim is what you're saying. So I was wondering about that worldview as well as concern with partners. The other thing you mentioned with Japan is like being concerned about how they're perceived. I think there's less concern uh, about how you're perceived in the Mm. US and UK, right? Globally, right? As a powerhouse, then there might be other places. And so I'm just trying to like, kind of like, I mean, obviously there's a, there are threads throughout superiority and supremacy. I was just trying to like, listen for them here to see how they they come out subtly. It's interesting when you were um, just speaking there, I was just thinking about the the, the kind of uh, power imbalance and things like that. And I do think that um, it, it's, 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 it's less overt, it's maybe more subtle, but you're kind of shifting, uh, you know, the normative value system back to your own by making these subtle adjustments. So it's not like back in the day where, you know, you showed up and you, you know, like decimated an entire population and subjugated them like on the spot. Although I'm sure that happened some places. It's like a a slow trickle of, Mm -hmm. you know, you are shifting more towards us. Now, like some things, you know, are, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, worth having some conversations. Like I definitely think, uh, you know, a democratic society or moving towards democratic values is, is something worth doing, you know, as opposed to having a dictatorship, you know, or stuff like this. Um, but in other cases, but I do think that it's a tool. So mm. a little bit of what I was like looking at in my, my research was, you know, how do you leverage this tool to, um, you know, shift um, the behavior, the actions, you know, the, the, uh, uh, attitudes of of the people who are receiving the the aid and it's this su- it's a more subtle shift um because it happens over time and mm-hmm. usually 
usually the people who are receiving the aid or need development help are, you know, they're in a, they're in a, they're just in a power disadvantage. They don't have they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the tools. They don't have the technology to the same level that you do. And you're like, ding 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 ding. I'm just gonna hold this over you until you bend. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. So right. yeah, it's 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 tricky. Oh, it's like a Invisalign. Have you seen those? Like the Invisalign things? Like they used to give you braces, right? And they'd put the bra- braces in the wires in their teeth and they eh, move them. But now, right? <laughs> but now you can get Invisalign, which is like this clear plastic thing that just kind of moves your teeth subtly and slowly into alignment. I'm sorry, mm. I'm terrible with metaphors, but that just occurred to that, me. <laughs> that is a good one. That makes sense. I, my, my kids need braces, so I'm very aware of what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, we just went to the orthodontist yesterday and I was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. 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 In- international development is like Invisalign. That'll be our like new tagline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Invisalign development. You don't even know what's happening. Exactly. You don't even know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Your teachers look like we want them to look at the end. Hey, look, so you've got this like massive global perspective, which we've just been kind of like digging into and unearthing some of the insights from you on, which has been fantastic. And yet you're working in something that's very locally focused, you know, and, and like in, in our conversations with each other that, you know, the, the hook that we kept coming back to was this idea mm. that Nova Scotian companies could be mm. born diverse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like Nova Scotian companies could be born diverse. So we're like going from this like massive global perspective, right the way down to this population of just over a million, you know, which there's a government target that it doubles within 30 years to up to 2 million. Right. And so we're going, you know, we are seeing a massive increase in people Mm -hmm. here. Like all the schools where I live are full to capacity. Right. So the population is getting younger and bigger. Um, And so what is it about that? You know, when we discovered that phrase that Nova Scotian companies are born diverse, what is it about that? That, you know, someone with that breadth of perspective, you were able to ground in that so locally. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm gl- and I'm glad you asked because uh, someone someone the other day, I was talking to them about this idea and uh, they kind of caught me off guard because sometimes I think, oh, yeah, everybody, you know, thinks the same way I do. Of course, these are all good things. And they were like, well, what problem does this, you know, help solve for a company? And I was like, what problem? What are you talking about? I had this kind of like attitude, but I had to check myself and, you know, like think back about it. And Tim, you're, you're totally right. And Tuesday, you're right. Um, you know, globally, Canada's uh, population rate is, is I think it's the highest in the G20. Like more people are moving to Canada than any other place. We, we also recruit a lot of people to, to come here. And our population in Nova Scotia has grown. We're over a million people now. I think uh, there'll be some new statistics coming out, but I think about 11, close to 12% of the population in, in Halifax are people who are visible minorities. Uh, some news came out recently that Chinese is now the third most spoken language in Nova Scotia. It used to be Arabic and now it's Chinese. So, you know, we're becoming a more diverse place, especially in Canada. I think Toronto might be one of the most diverse places on the on the planet. They're always, you know, talking about that. And if we're going to double our population, um, you know, people are going to be coming from from other places. But I guess the reason why I, I think about companies, you know, I I've, I've been working with businesses and startups, and you know, that's the the space that I like to to play in. But I think that um, you know, businesses and entrepreneurs play a huge role 
in the world, in our society. They have a very specific job to do. Um, you know, government is great. They have their jobs to do to regulate kind of how things are going. We have not-for-profits. Um, but businesses are a very influential group. And, you know, they affect everything from the kinds of products and services we receive. Uh, they influence the way we think with branding and marketing, um, you know, some of the choices that we make. So the influence of business is huge. And, you know, as we get more diverse, and especially with younger generations, Gen Z, you know, they're probably some of the most well-educated, liberal-minded, you know, maybe not everywhere, but, you know, they're like open with gender. Uh, they want to buy products and services from companies that are aligned to their their values. And now we're seeing the rise of B Corps, uh, purpose-led businesses, you know, all, all these kinds of um, entities. And so if I think about the, the important role that the businesses and the influences that they have, I think, well, you know, with this you know, probably my kids are more likely to listen to a Nike commercial and be influenced by that um, than other things. And I think that it's really important for businesses, especially at a very young age as, as, or early stage of development, to really think about how they're building their business culture, um, the values that they establish kind of at the very early stages um, are super important uh, in creating the company that will go on and on and on to sell products, services, uh, you know, influence the way healthcare is delivered, you know, all of these kinds of things. And so, you know, to create a more just and uh, diverse society takes some intention to make this happen. If we just all sit around and be like, Oh yeah, I just hope for the best, you know, <laughs> like I just, I just hope these companies will like recognize the, these values and reflect them back to me. I just hope that they do. Yeah. Um, you know, that, you know, that's worked to a certain extent, but not that much. And so I think that if we can, especially companies in Nova Scotia or, you know, other places, really at the very beginner with the, with the founders, really help them to understand the value, whether it's from having a diverse team, uh, you know, selling into diverse markets, developing diverse products um, from those basic things. But if you can start from the very beginning, I think that you're um, building a quality company and future, future proofing right. uh, your company mm -hmm. Um, yeah, because it's know. actually like having a diverse team is what equips your company to be able to sell into diverse markets successfully. That there's actually, a, you know, those three things you just listed, there's actually like a, a there's a causality between those. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, how are you going to, how are you going to be able to sell into a diverse market if you can't even create the conditions for diversity within your own organization? There's no, there's no business, no logic to that, right? You know? Yeah, I think that's true. Like, you know, if if you if uh, if you have the same people around the table, you're you're going to create the same kind of products, and you'll probably run into the same kinds of problems. Right. Um, and we see it all the time with like healthcare products, for example. You know, either drugs are designed or healthcare is deployed, and it completely misses the mark in certain tar target populations, mm -hmm. and then we have you know bad health outcomes. 
um, you know, it's gotten better, but, uh, or, you know, uh, products are not designed for people who have very dark skin. So solving this at the beginning, I think is kind of, or at least being aware of it at the beginning before a company gets too big, you know, might help you to avoid like an Uber type situation where you're like suddenly a massively, you know, a massive company and, you know, you have a terrible reputation for, you know, how you treat your employees, how you treat women, and it starts to impact who you can attract mm -hmm. into the company, uh, women wanting to work there, your shareholders and investors are a little nervous. They're probably like, oh, there's going to be a lawsuit, you know. Um, and if you can, you know, when it's a, a five, six, ten person team, if you can create the culture of your company and business and include ideas and principles around diversity, equity and inclusion, or how to treat people with respect, how you're going to go about doing business, how you're going to like lead with your values. I feel like if you could do that when you're a small company, then it gets embedded and it grows from there. And over time, you know, it's very easy to have a company for like three years, five years. Can you keep that company around for 50 years? Right? Like how, you know, Maybe you have a company for like a year or two, but it blows up because all your workers left and, you know, half of the women are like, ah, this place sucks. I'm out of here. Yeah. I, I had an experience myself, actually, where I was working for a company and I realized I had a misalignment of values. And, um, you know, one of the founders was, was like, oh, I'm going to make you rich. You're going to be rich. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, who, I mean, who doesn't want to be rich? Uh, but the way that the uh, staff were treated, the way the senior leadership was treated, mm. the, the the way that the company was was run, uh, really just did not align with my values. And at some point, I was like, "I got to get out of here. Mm. This is this is this company's not going to change." And then I left, and I I felt really bad because I really loved my team mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And but then, sure enough, a whole bunch of other people were you know, leaving as well. And and the reason was because of the corporate culture yeah. was toxic. Mm. So I think that um, these are skills that can be learned early on that will be beneficial to the, the company itself as it grows and scales. And, uh, you know, also to, um, you know, to uh, employees and creating a respectful kind of work environment mm. and, and hopefully products and services that, meet global needs because we're in a global world now more than ever. Right. Right. You know, we, we always say there's, of course, there's a business case around DEI work, but there's like, we don't want to rest on the moral case because some people will get there and they won't, or they won't. The business case is more compelling, but there's also, I think what you're, what you're talking a little bit deeper around a strategic case, right? It's like around kind of like longevity and sustainability and like actually responsiveness, right. which is, you know, mm -hmm. not just better products for more people. So you get more market share, but like actually making your organization sustainable. And, um, so there are many cases to be made for DEI mm -hmm. and Alex, I just like, uh, okay. Here's what I want to say. It, had I known all of these things about you, I feel like, you know, every time I meet you, I'm like, whoa, there's more. Oh my gosh, there's even more. <laughs> and you're pretty awesome on the surface. But like, I feel like the longer we get to know you, the, the more awesome you become. And so now I'm like- Agreed. <laughs> just a little Mary. But now I'm really, um, I, I was delighted 
to have you in the activating change mm. and honored to have you in the activating change. Um, and now I'm like, wow, Tim, Alex did our program. And um, mm-hmm. I would love, Alex, if you just, you know, before we close, if you could just say a little bit about your experience uh, of activating change. Yeah, it, it was it was great. I felt so lucky that I that I even knew that it was happening and that I was able to join into the uh, into the cohort. And what I loved about it, you know, Onside is a small organization, and I, I feel especially for small organizations, it's so. Um, enriching to have kind of like a a, a peer a peer mm-hmm. network mm-hmm. Uh, or peer learning, and then also having the guidance from you and 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 Tim really um, was useful. And your other colleague, whose name I just Jean forgot, Paul. he was Jean Paul. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was he was really great as well. Yeah, and um, kind of being led through all of the exercises and the videos and all those things. The, the thing I, I was thinking about this, I think the thing that stood out for me the, the most uh, was, uh, I think it was relationship is resolution, mm-hmm. was one of the, the little lessons or key learnings that I kind of take with me. Um, because we, we say kind of for ourselves is that, you know, progress, you know, moves at the speed of trust. And if you don't have deep, meaningful relationships, it's kind of hard to do that. And, and, and you kind of challenged us to, you know, be inquisitive, like, mm. you know, you know, ask yourself, like, what's, what's happening and what's going on. Um, and then also to think about uh, the kind of leader you are now, or like what's holding you back uh, and what could propel you forward, I thought was was really powerful. And I really also loved the fact that um, there were so many international people from everywhere. Just uh, like I felt there were some great people down in the Caribbean. There were people at the Vatican. <laughs> I mean, it, people from Nova Scotia. It, it was, it was, I was like, wow, this is so interesting. All of these different people trying to solve these challenges. Mm. And it was nice to have a, a, a kind of safe space to talk about your your challenge and really get some good feedback. I got some, I got some, I got some, I got some uh, straight talk in some of the in some of the sessions. And you you kind of need that. Mm-hmm. You need uh, sometimes you you need that because you're at least for me. I'm kind of analytical, so I I kind of sometimes I'm too much in my own head mm. and just hearing other people reflect back to you. Uh, what they think is going on is was super helpful. So I love it. I really enjoyed it. It was it was great. Oh, well, it was wonderful to have you with us. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Hey, listen, we're getting we're getting to the end, and as as you know, when we get to the end of the pod, we ask people. Oh. I know. <laughs> da, da, da. We ask people if they've got uh, anything they're carrying around in their back pocket, like a little bit of wisdom, or insight, or poetry, or creativity, or like, is there something that you know gets you through the day at the moment? That when you don't know what to do, or you're sitting down and you have a minute to look out the window, or do, do you know what I mean? And, and it could be as simple as something your kids said, or you said to your kids, or it could be a quote or a song. Or, but I'm just wondering if there's anything you're carrying around at the moment in your back pocket. Yeah, sometimes um, <laughs> this is something my my son said to me like years ago. And sometimes when I'm like ah, feeling down, like I can't think of anything good, or I'm just kind of stuck, I just remember he was like a little kid. He's probably like six or something. So I just remember he said, uh, "Mom, you have lots of smarts and good ideas in your head." And I thought, "Wow, thank you." I 
Thank you very much. Mm. I needed to, I needed to hear that. (laughs) I needed to hear that. So, so every once in a while, I, I think about that. And if I'm like stuck, I'm like, Alex, you know, your kids told you, you have lots, you have lots of smarts and good ideas in your head. So just like take a breath and get it together. (laughs) I love that. So, yeah. So I, and I, I've I've said that to a few other people. I was like, you know, cause you get kind of too stuck and I was like, you have smarts and good ideas in your head. Just take a moment, breathe through it. And you know, something will, will, will come up. That'll be, you know, good or useful or, or, or relevant. So yeah. Yeah. That's great. And Alex, I don't know if, I don't know the age of your child, but if he's not in the tween, preteen, or teen years, you may need to just pull that out to make yourself feel better whenever you talk to him. I'm just saying, <laughs> I kind of wish my 14-year-old had said something to me like that. I'm sure I'd pull it out daily. Maybe I'd have it on a card in front of me. One point, yeah. she thought I was smart and had ideas yeah. in my head. Yeah. Magnet. I used Magnet to have a... This is another one. This is that. This, I had another one. It was uh, something I wrote on a sticky that one of my kids said when they were like really li- little, which was uh, dinosaurs say balumpalump. Oh, that's that's what dinosaurs say. They say balumpalump. I love it. I like it. <laughs> I like oh, it. I love that. Now they're teenagers now, so they'll probably be really embarrassed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll call this episode balumpalump. Dinosaurs say balumpalump. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate, thank you so much for taking the time in the midst of your day. You've got your own podcast as well, which is called? Uh, the Onside Podcast. Yes, you can find it on our website, which is uh, www.onsidenow.ca, or you can find it on Apple, Spotify, all that good jazz. Awesome. So, uh, And if people yeah. want to find out, yeah, and if people want to find out more about Onside, where would they go? <laughs> They can check out our website, which was the onsidenow.ca. Uh, we have our inclusive innovation monitor on our site, uh, or we also have a, a LinkedIn group uh, is another great way to kind of stay in touch and kind of know what's what's uh, going on. And that's, uh, I think it's Onside Now on LinkedIn. Love it. All right. Take good care, my friend. Thank you for giving us your time and your insights and your heart today. And uh, listeners, we're going to keep going with more amazing people. All right. Thanks. It's been great. Cheers. Thank you.